Karabakh Not, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. Конечно, это огромная трагедия. Люди гибнут, большие потери its impact on the Armenian and Azerbaijani societies and the larger region. We'll also be looking at possible ways of resolving this conflict. And my guest today is Arzu Gebulaeva. She's an Azerbaijani journalist and author, and we've reached her in Istanbul, Turkey. Arzu, welcome to Radio Canada International. Uh, thank you for having me. Arzu, since 1988, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict has affected the lives of millions of Azerbaijanis and Armenians. Tell me how it has affected your life and the lives of your loved ones. Well, let's see, I was born in 1983. So I was born a couple years before the war began um, and the relations really started souring. And, you know, I grew up at a time when the war did take place and Nagorno-Karabakh became part of all of our lives, you know, its status, the losses that we um, endured during the war, um, its burden on everyone's shoulder, um, especially with regard to, you know, being the side that lost the war um, in 1994. Um, it's It's been an interesting um, sort of life journey or... or, or a component of all of our lives uh, through, throughout. And for me in particular, I don't know how it happened, but somehow I found myself not on the side of this, you know, enemy rhetoric, wanting more war, but on the side of those who been trying to seek peace or find ways uh, for, you know, opening communications and um, fostering dialogue and building confidence among the two communities. So, um, it's it's been an interesting journey with that with that regard because especially in this in this war uh, that we saw last for forty plus days, I realized that there's very little room for um, for voices that called for peace or wanted peace, um, and that probably now there is more need for them, um, but. It's also really difficult to envision anything happening soon with that regard, um, especially because of, um, um, yeah, just everything that was said and done in the last uh, 40 or so days. So mm. that's, that's how I've always felt, or at least in my adult life, felt about the conflict. And I've also been very much on the side of conflict-sensitive reporting you know, not so much focusing on 
the historical facts, which are always really important, uh, but also trying to focus on um, the humanitarian side of things. Uh, of course, acknowledging, as always, um, the losses and moving forward, trying to find ways to um, get over that very high mountain that's full of much pain. What has been the impact of this conflict in in the larger context a context of the political, social, and economic life in Azerbaijan? Well, I mean, you know, for for a very long time, pretty much since the ceasefire was signed in 1994, Karabakh was that one thing that united everyone, uh, united the people, united the opposition with the government. During this war, this sense of togetherness uh, really became evident um, from the first days of the war when we saw how basically everyone came together. All the opposing views that used to be critical of the government decisions or who, you know, you know, journalists who did investigative stories on um, corruption and the rights abuse and whatnot, they all came together under one banner and that was um, we're, we're restoring what was rightfully ours, so to speak. And that has created a very interesting picture in that you have all these different actors that used to, um, you know, bicker with each other and argue with each other and in worst case scenario, end up in jail because of the, the disagreements that they had and because there was never really much room for freedom of expression or freedom of speech in the country. Um, and in terms of political discourse, this was probably one of the uh, few times when I really observed how this, you know, psychology of identity, of um, common common enemy, uh, can bring people together, um, and I, this this translates into all other areas as well, social too and economic. I mean, everyone was united and is united to this day. I mean, campaigns, social campaigns, and fundraising campaigns were organized for. Um, the soldiers who were going on the front line or who, who were already on the front line, um, fundraising campaigns and um, uh, collection of food and goods were organized for families who were affected by um, the attacks on the residential districts, uh, not just on the towns and villages that were on the front line, but also in places like Ganja and Barda and Tartash. And so there's been one single front of uh, unanimous approval, support, and after the war ended uh, happiness and celebrations and Solidarity, really. That's how I would describe the sentiments in, in the country. Mm. In Armenia, and especially among the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, this conflict is seen as an existential fight for self-determination and self-preservation. How is this conflict uh, seen uh, in the Azerbaijani society? Um, it is seen as the existential fight for the territorial integrity, uh, for uh, restoring 
back um, the territories, the return of places like Shusha and Karbajar, and most importantly, the right for the IDPs to go back to their homes, um, because that was one of the humanitarian tragedies of, of the war when it ended in the 90s was that um, over 600,000 people at the time were displaced and forced to leave their homes behind. And this, this has always been this, as you said, just like in Armenia, um, an existential drive uh, idea uh, of restoring territories that were once lost and making Azerbaijan whole again. This is, this is how um, I would describe the sentiment, yeah. Now, uh, we had almost, what, 26 years since the 1994 ceasefire uh, and mm-hmm. attempts at peace. Why do you think the war began on September 27th? What do you think led to it? Well, I mean, much has already been said about the many reasons that possibly led to the outbreak of this war. I don't know why it started exactly on September 27th, but I could say that of all the things that I have read and observed, I mean, it's one thing to say is that Nagorno-Karabakh has been forgotten in the minds of Western politicians and Western decision makers, especially countries who have been co-chairs of the OEC Minsk Group, this international body responsible for negotiating peace in the first place. So there's been this overall sense of um, frustration that has been piling up in um, in Azerbaijan that you know this this engagement that. Uh, was very visible in the U.S., and not just with Trump's um, election, but in general, um, but also in the EU, sort of this, this interest uh, that, oh, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, well, let's just put it on, on, on the side and, and, and see what other more immediate problems we have to deal with. So there was this frustration of disengagement. I think there was also this um, disappointment in the very promising, what looked like a very promising start of um, the negotiations that started after Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan came to power in 2018, and all this um, positive, what seemed at the time positive rhetoric around um, finding common ground and finding a lasting solution to this to this war, and that also failed, and that failed. Pretty much the moment Pashinyan traveled to Karabakh and said, Karabakh is Armenia. And I think that was um, a clear trigger for Azerbaijan um, that this was un- unacceptable uh, for this to happen. I mean, you know, we could we could probably talk about many other reasons that have been, been shared. But I think for me, this disillusionment that, okay, for so many years we've been trying to negotiate the future of Nagorno-Karabakh through peaceful means, it didn't work. Um, why not try the military resolution? And, you know, this is something that President Hamaliyev also said, especially at the end of the war. He said, um, we proved to the world that, you know, a military solution was possible uh, rather than peaceful resolution. And 
And so, yeah, it's, it's resentment, it's disengagement, it's frustration, it's disbelief and, um, yeah, lack of patience um, at this point. And the inevitable did happen um, with very serious consequences uh, for both sides um, in terms of military losses, in terms of um, damage done on um, civilian um, populations and the infrastructure and whatnot. So it's, yeah, it, it was, it, it was, it was def definitely never a frozen conflict. At least I never really considered it a frozen conflict, especially if you look at all the violations of previous ceasefires um, that were signed, well, especially the one that was signed in 1984. Um, and this was bound to happen sooner than later. And it did happen the way it did. And just a reminder, my guest today is Arzu Gibulayeva. She's an Azerbaijani journalist and author. And she's speaking to us from Istanbul, Turkey. Arzu, on November the 9th, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia signed a declaration of cessation of hostilities that uh, triggered a huge political crisis in Armenia. What has been the reaction to this ceasefire in Azerbaijan? Um, it was festive. Um, Azerbaijanis were on the streets celebrating. Um, it was very... It, first of all, it was a relief that the fighting was over, that this meant that um, people who had their loved ones on the front line will see them soon and that there will be no, no more deaths. But in general, it was welcomed as a um, victory for President Ilham Aliyev, um, for his government, for, for the Azerbaijani army. It was celebrated, as I mentioned, people went on the streets in the middle of the night, waving flags and just, yeah, feeling feeling in a very festive uh, mood. And it only started trickling in terms of the agreements themselves, in terms of the articles themselves that are in the, in the agreement. People only started asking questions um, in in few days' time, as sort of this, you know, ink started drying up on the agreement. As you know, what does this really mean? Um, what's the timeline? When are we seeing um, specific steps taken by the government? What does the presence of Russian peacekeeping forces actually mean? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And it's been interesting to see some discussion um, headed in a direction that is critical of Russian military presence, especially if we look at um, the, 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 the lack of their presence in Azerbaijan until now, and sort of Azerbaijan priding itself um, in not having Russian boots on the ground. Um, so these are, like, there's been part of the discussion there's been around this uh, presence and what will also uh, this mean for the Turkish peacekeeping forces? Are they going to come? Are there are they going to be equally? Um, are they going to have equal responsibility as the Russian peacekeeping forces are having? Um, so there's been a lot of this back and forth between Russia and Turkey that we've been we've been watching, um, and also uh, yeah the next the next steps the next uh, steps especially with regard to the peace negotiation because by no means this is a peace deal this is just an agreement to stop fighting, um, and so everyone at least those who are 
reading the agreement, following the um, decisions and statements made by, made by the decision makers, uh, the, the questions that are being asked are certainly in the direction of what does this all mean for peace and, and peaceful resolution of Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, you mentioned uh, Turkey. Uh, this time, Turkey has played a much more a direct role in this conflict in supporting Azerbaijan. Uh, what was uh, the reaction to Turkey's involvement in in this conflict in Turkey itself? And you're based in Istanbul and you've been living there now. Um, in, in Turkey, the reaction has been positive. Well, I mean, I cannot say that everyone here in Turkey, all 80 million population were um, supporting the decision, but um, there's definitely, you know, the sentiment of these two countries being so close and constantly referring to each other as brother nations, as siblings, um, I think really uh, helped the conversation um, in supporting the decision of the government to, you know, present itself as a um, supportive brother in this war and providing all the assistance to Azerbaijan. Dün Azerbaycan topraklarına saldıran Ermenistan'ı bir kez daha kınıyorum. Um, it was in the news at all times pretty much um, since the day of the war on September 27th and um, it's been widely discussed of what it means for Turkey in general um, given its role in the region. Um, you know, in other contexts, obviously, when we look at Turkey's presence in Syria, Turkey's presence in Libya, you know, what does this mean when Turkey also um, now gets involved in, in the Caucasus? So from that point of view, there have been questions asked um, to where this decision making is going. And is it just really to show off the power? Is it really to... Uh, generally support the country, uh, generally support Azerbaijan, or are there any other nuances at, at play? But overall, you know, just, just watching what's been happening here, you know, lots of Azerbaijani flags, um, multiple support rallies organized. There is a exhibition in Taksim right now with Karabakh Azerbaijan, photos of Erdogan and President Hamaliyev meeting and it's definitely been um very visible very vocal and very much present you know it's it's basically Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan and relations with Azerbaijan became part of the local narrative uh in the news or um at these um discussions that that some of the television channels have uh in the evenings so it's been very interesting to see so much conversation around the conflict, but also around the relations between the two countries. Hmm. Who, who do you think are the real winners and losers of this war? I think this is. Um, I mean, I think it's a it's 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 a tough question to answer because some have said that it's Turkey, some have said that it's Russia, both. Um, I say that Azerbaijan definitely secured victory in, in a sense that it returned the territories um, that it was fighting for. 
and now um, the this this promise that President Hamaliev granted to people has been fulfilled. So in that sense, President Hamaliev definitely is is a is a winner, and so is Azerbaijan, if we think in a broader sense. Um, and in addition to that. Russia's involvement. There was this interview uh, with uh, President Putin, uh, I think today, where he actually, you know, shared a little bit more of, of his involvement, of Russia's involvement, and Lavrov's involvement in negotiation processes. I don't know if if, if you had a chance to see it, but um, he mentioned that there was an agreement uh, reached, or at least a, a close to agreement uh, reached on October 19th and 20th. Um, but unfortunately, Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan didn't agree to that agreement. Um, and so the war continued. So, you know, Russia's presence, it's now we're starting to learn far more about Russia's involvement in the negotiation process. Uh, because originally there was a lot of sort of uh, questioning about is Russia actually interested or why are they not pressing for ceasefire because they've always been the ones that bro brokered ceasefire in between the two countries. And so I would say Russia is also a winner in terms of its engagement and now with the presence of the Russian peacekeeping forces on the ground. And Turkey. I mean, Turkey has been very vocal. Um, uh, President Erdogan has been very vocal in his in his open support for Azerbaijan. Um, and they've always sort of cooperated. The military relationship has always been really strong. Um, and now, you know, Turkey also showed that it's it it's it's interested in expanding its 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 sphere of influence and it certainly has achieved it. I mean whether or not there will be Turkish uh, peacekeeping forces at this center um, that is part of the agreement that was signed on November 9, uh, whether or not they're going to have more control over time. Um, it, we're yet to see it, but I think if, if, if I list all the, the, the winners in, in, this, in this war, that would be my um, ranking. Um, and Armenia losing, um, uh, being on the losing side, of course, um, it's, it leaves... Um, it leaves a lot of still unanswered questions about what's going to be next, especially in the way that the war ended and what will happen eventually. What does this war mean for the political future of Ilham Aliyev, who's been in power since, I think, 2003? And That's correct. And for the future of democracy in Azerbaijan? Wow. Well... I think I could get lynched, <laughs> depending on how I answer this question. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I mean, for for President Ilham Aliyev, winning this war meant surge and support. Um, we already saw it at the start of the war. You know, so much rallying behind him, uh, so much support for the war itself, and so much victory every time he went on television announcing the the territories that were retaken by the Azerbaijani army. You know, every single message was perceived with much celebration. And there were even jokes now circulating online that, you know, if there is an election now, 
there won't be even a need to falsify them because if there is if if President Ilham Aliyev's name is on the ballot, he'll definitely take the vote by majority. Um, so in in sorts of political um, power, this has definitely made him a stronger leader, especially in the eyes of those who really kind of questioned his um, political aspirations, if I may put it that way, um, or had any questions about whether or not he can actually pull this off. And he showed, he demonstrated that he, he can, and with a very strong army that the government has invested over the years, it, he made it, he showed everyone that it was possible. As for the future of Azerbaijan and democracy, I actually don't know. Um, I've had some very interesting interactions and experiences throughout these last 40-something days with uh, friends and colleagues from the civil society in Azerbaijan who said that we will continue working on democracy, but now is not the time to criticize the government or um, say anything that would damage its reputation because we need this. We need to win this war in order to be able to actually build democracy in the country. And for me, you know, I really thought about this and I keep thinking about how this is going to work out. And to be honest with you, I have no answers. I couldn't quite capture the logic in that way of thinking. So I just wish luck to, to everyone who will continue fighting for democratic change, for reforms in the country, for trying to make Azerbaijan you know, a place, a country with equal rights and freedom of expression and no political prisoners behind bars and, you know, finally have free and fair elections and a, a government system that is for the citizens rather than, you know, not so much interested in their well-being. Um, so unfortunately, I don't really have a clear answer to your question. Um, I wish I did. <laughs> How about Turkey's role in Azerbaijani politics? I mean, there's been uh, a lot of talk about how uh, important the, the Turkish, especially the Turkish military uh, aid in Azerbaijan uh, has been to in, during this conflict, uh, the the military contribution, the uh, the drones, the jets, uh, the uh, the Syrian and Libyan uh, fighters who were uh, transported there. Is there a worry in the Azerbaijani society that uh, uh, you know, having escaped uh, Russia's influence, Azerbaijan might might fall under uh, Turkish political influence? Um, I don't see it that way. Um, I mean, the, the two countries have always been close to each other, uh, but I've never really sensed that influence. And I do not think that the balance has shifted. I mean, Azerbaijan has always played it very um, carefully with Russia, with, with, with Turkey, and especially, especially with Russia. Um, but I don't, I don't really see how... Um, Turkey can influence uh, politics in Azerbaijan. 
as as of the end of this war, to be honest with you. Now, the fighting has stopped for now, uh, you know, but some people would say we're still a very long way from uh, peace in this region. What do you think needs to happen for uh, for there to be real peace between Armenians and Azerbaijanis? Um, for real, for any chance for coexistence, I think there needs to be It, 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 things need to happen in two directions, on a government level and on a societal level. And it needs to happen in parallel. And, and by, by, by that, I mean, you know, um, clear steps taken by the two governments and not just giving promises about safety, about security, about um, any programs that could help for peaceful coexistence but actual you know step-by-step plans outlined and then those steps you know in parallel being implemented among the societies how this is going to be done is a question and probably a matter that will require a lot of planning and it's going to take a very long time to actually find the confidence and trust among the people to have even these steps see implemented. Um, a lot of weight falls on the role of civil society organizations that used to engage in confidence building programs before the war and before relations really went kind of downfall. Um, the work that they've done in a partnership with international organizations, whether through dialogue programs or joint initiatives. I mean, all of this needs to be brought back on the discussion table, but a lot of these programs also need a remodeling because the political context has changed and so has the geographical context. And, and I think a lot of these confidence building programs among the two communities will have to take all of that into account. Um, I would also add to that, that we need to change the way we look at each other. Um, the way Azerbaijanis see Armenians as perpetrators of uh, violence and aggression and the way Armenians see Azerbaijanis exactly the same way and I'm not saying that you know this is how everybody thinks in both the countries but I am saying that the fact that this type of enmity exists regardless on you know regardless of the percentage of the people who think this way it's a dangerous um, element to have in the two countries that are actually trying to build bridges rather than you know destroy them So it's going to be brick by brick, step by step um, process. I haven't seen anything happen yet, uh, but I am hoping that soon we are going to start seeing more um, more initiatives coming up and suggested. And what's really important that all of these programs are supported by the two governments and not looked down upon as we've seen 
or we saw in the past uh, with previous uh, civil society engagements. Um, so getting rid of this language and trying to look at the things that we all have in common rather than things that divide us, I think is really important. And that can only be achieved through, yeah, just the way we look, if we see, we interpret each other, the way we study each other in our textbooks, um, because I think textbooks also are quite an important element of this war and the atmosphere that exists in two countries. And hopefully, you know, in some time, in some years, we will see some steps, some, some initiatives, some real stories coming out of this. But I don't see that happening anytime soon because, yeah, we need a lot of work and time to get this work done. Um, in the meantime, I think it's really important to continue preparing the societies for this idea of peaceful coexistence, uh, whether through enforcing positive norms, whether it's through enforcing more positive rhetoric. Um, but it is important because we cannot, it's, it's, it's all part of a process that needs to move simultaneously in the same direction um, and needs to be systematic. How hopeful are you that this will happen in your lifetime? In my lifetime, let's see, I'm 37. Mm, I mean, maybe in 20 years, 30 years, <laughs> I hope. Arzo Gebelaeva, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts and your expertise with us. Um, uh, it was very helpful. Thank you for having me and thank you for a candid conversation. And my guest today was Arzu Gebulaeva. She's an Azerbaijani journalist and author, and we reached her in Istanbul, Turkey. You've been listening to episode four of the Nagorno-Karabakh Knot, a podcast series by Radio Canada International. Check out our other podcasts on rcinet.ca. You can also download them on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>